Let's just pray before we begin. Father, we just thank you that you've been uplifted in this meeting so far. We thank you because it is through your Son, Jesus, that we have fellowship together this morning. And Father, it's so wonderful, the sacrifice that he has made for us. Father, I want to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that this morning we might receive revelationary truth, truth that will so liberate us and set us free and give us a course. Father, an aim on which we can set our sights. Oh, Father, we're asking this morning that all that is said, all that is done, may be entirely for your glory. Father, we have a vision, Father, and it's a wonderful vision. And we pray this morning that that vision may take a stride forward, that we should see the accomplishment in our day of that which you have determined even from eternity past. Oh, Father, we thank you that Jesus is coming soon. But we thank you that the church will be glorious before it goes. It is going to be a shining light, hallelujah, for all the world to see. And therefore we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that in a small way this morning, or perhaps in a big way this morning, Father, that we should see in this area the accomplishment of what you have purposed in your wonderful, mighty counsels. Oh, Father, this morning, just come, lead us, and bless us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. For some time I've been thinking that it is high time that in the fellowship we had a series of studies which would underline the reason why God has brought us into existence. You see, there are people now in the midst who've never actually seen what many of us saw in the early days. That is, why God was doing a new thing in our day. Why is it that a fellowship like ours has come into existence? Why is it that we run the way that we do run? Why is it that our meetings tend to be unstructured? Why is it that there are, we have people who are called elders in the fellowship? Why is it that we're seeing the establishment of smaller groups around the fellowship, wrongly called Friday groups, but really house groups within the fellowship. Why do we see all these things coming to pass? And what is body ministry, after all? And so I felt it is time that we actually went through these things so that people can again clarify their vision, and for people who've never had the vision, they can actually learn what God is doing. Do you know, when the church was first talked of, it was an absolute mystery. You know, the people around Jesus, when he talked about the church, didn't understand what he was talking about. In the Old Testament, the church had been mentioned nowhere, and the idea that the Old Testament saints had was this, that Israel was the chosen nation, they were the top dogs, they had the oracles, they had the calling, they had the service, they had the revelation, and that the Gentiles could be blessed in some measure, but never blessed as much as Israel was blessed. And so, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to come into blessing, you had to accept the God of Israel, and then you had to perhaps come and live in Israel and worship the way that they worshipped, but no matter whether you liked it or not, you couldn't come into fullness of blessing. And the Jews who were around with Jesus, that was their idea of what uh, God's people was about. But Jesus started talking in different terms altogether. Terms which were at first mysterious, and yet terms which the apostles who followed Jesus uh, went on to describe and explain in tremendous detail. Do you know what Jesus said? 
Jesus started talking about a church, and he said this, I will build my church. And whenever he talked about the church, it was always with the most stunning adjectives you could ever imagine. You know? What did he say in Matthew 16, 18? We know the verse very well. I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail or overcome it. That's what Jesus said. In other words, I am about to build something that I've called my church, and listen, no matter how cunning the enemy is, no matter how powerful the enemy is, no matter what tactics he uses, he will never, ever, ever be able to overcome that which I'm establishing in the earth. And the church was painted as something that was victorious, that was stunning, that was glowing, that was wonderful, living, abounding. It was absolutely tremendous. Jesus spoke only in such terms about his church. Then you got the New Testament writers. Then, of course, just before the New Testament writers put pen to paper, you had the establishment of the church. And what was it? Well, it was what Jesus said it was going to be. It was stunning. It was wonderful. It was victorious. Let's turn to one book in the Bible. Let's turn to the book of Ephesians. And let me just show you just how dynamic uh, the revelation concerning the church really is. Turn to Ephesians, first of all, and go to chapter 1. And I'm just going to take a few verses. Verse 18, first of all, and he's talking here um, about what we should know. And he's asking the Lord that we may have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory marvelous phrases, the riches, that means plenty of money around, the abundance overflowing of his glory, the stunning glory that came down in front of the Israelites. What is the riches of his glory, of the glory of his inheritance, where? In the saints, in us. Amazing. Next, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Look at that. That's not very good English, you know, it's the only way it could be expressed, exceeding greatness. Absolutely massive. The, the, the Greek is much more um, full of meaning than the English here. You know, it doesn't just mean, uh, well, what is the exceeding greatness? It means such fantastic power that, that we're just shimmering with that power. We're so filled with the enormity of the power, the exceeding greatness of his power, to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Go to verse 22, talking about Christ. And God has put all things under the feet of Jesus and has given him the head over all to the church. And in verse 23, a description of the church. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Marvelous. This is the church he's talking about. Hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Stunning words. Okay, go to uh, chapter 3, verse 10. And here's the purpose of the church. To the intent, or with the purpose, that now unto the principalities and powers. Who are they? They're leading angels, right? The top angelic realm. With this purpose, that to the very top ranking angels, 
in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Fantastic. The church, therefore, is here, what? Not to preach to the lower angels primarily, although we do preach to them, to preach even to the highest ranking angels. And here's the church as the lecturer, and there, sitting in the pews, are all the highest angels, and we are showing them what is the manifold wisdom of God. This is stunning. You see, the church here is seen as something alive, wonderful, powerful, tremendous, of, of inestimable value and tremendous importance. Mm -hmm. That's what the Bible says. But what do we see? When we look around us, or when the world looks around them, what do they see in the church? Do they see this? They don't see it. What do they see? They see really something that has become an irrelevance, basically. I'm not talking about any denomination. I'm talking about the way the world looks at Christianity. The church, well, a bit of an irrelevance. I heard someone on the radio the other day who's a socialist and a social worker. He said, I don't know why these vicars and these ministers and these religious people have the standing that they have in society. He says, no one with any problems goes to them. That's what he says. And it's true in our society, generally speaking, you know. He says, no, most people, if they've got problems, they come along to social workers like me. They ring up the Samaritans, you know. They go along uh, to the local social security. That's where they find their help. They certainly don't want religion when they're in need. That's the view of the world. An irrelevance, um, really a sort of impotent and rapidly shrinking giant is how they view the church, you see. Um, the world does not share what the Bible says about the church. They don't see it like that. What do we see it as? Well, it's rather odd the way Christians look at the church, you know. Uh, I used to gaze at the church as a non-Christian, and I used to think what I've just explained. Oh, I sometimes had different thoughts. I used to think it was a Lonely Hearts Club, you know, <laughs> full, of, full of people who really couldn't get on with anyone else, so they just sort of congregated together, and finally they put up with one another. That's how I viewed it. Sometimes as a sort of gas ring, you know, where everyone would come and have a good old gossip, and you'd have an hour and a half of fellowship, the Lord got quarter of an hour, and then they sat around chatting for an hour and a half. Yes, that's how I viewed it. Or sometimes as a social club, you know, where you could get together, have a bit of basketball, you know, and uh, no, the basketball club didn't want you because you weren't very good, but the church always did, so that was all right, and along you went like that. For people who couldn't really cope with reality, you know, and it all got together. And then I became a Christian, you know, and then what did I find the church was? Well, I must say, I nearly reported them to the government authority that deals with false advertising. <laughs> because before, I was told that the church was full of love and happiness and joy. Oh, tremendous, you know. And Roger, how can you bear to be a non-Christian? Yeah? And then I became a Christian. Do you know what I found among groups of Christians, the so-called Church of Jesus Christ? I found they were backbiters. I find they were, found they were gossipers. I found that they were malcontents. They didn't like one another awfully much. And I really got gained the impression they were rather hypocritical. They said nice words, you know, and said glorious things about the work of Jesus Christ. But actually, when it came to getting down to it, they didn't like one another very much, you know, all claiming they were right with God. But of course, they couldn't get right with one another. And I remember once, much of the embarrassment of the group that I was among, I actually stood up and I said, you know, I received more love 
when I was on a geography field trip <laughs> from non-Christian geographers. That's the truth, I said, and I, I really feel that the church has not, you know, that what you said about the church hasn't come to pass. And you know, unfortunately, that's the experience of many, many, many Christians. It really is. How come there's a difference between what we find and what we experience and what Jesus said about it? Well, let me tell you. Jesus told a parable and he said there was a man who planted good seed in his field and when the harvest time came and it was time when he was going to collect in the fruit of his labor, he looked out of his window and what did he see? He saw the wheat, but he also saw the tares. And he said, how could this be? And someone whispered in his ear and said, an enemy's done it. Someone's come in the night and someone's come and they've spread wrong seed around. An enemy has done it. And you know, I soon, once I got over the petty reaction that I had when I was first saved, I soon realized that is exactly the truth. An enemy has come along and has caused disruption. And of course, I then had to ask the Lord, well, Lord, why has he done it? And the Lord said to me, because he knows what I said about the church was true. It is stunningly powerful. It does have fantastic power and effect. He knows it and he is absolutely scared that this church should ever get it together and start moving against him. Oh, yes. And I said, I see. And the Lord began to show me. The devil doesn't come and attack head on. Oh, no. Much more subtle than that. He comes inside and starts attacking from inside, you know. He causes disruption so that no two Christians can ever get on with it. anyone else, you know. And there is disruption right the way around. And they're so full of pettiness, so full of bickering, so full of disunity, that finally Satan can put his feet up and say, well, I think I've dealt with that one just fine. Rather like having a tank, you know, with the navigator and the driver arguing all the time. And the navigator saying, going right, go right, and the, the driver going left. And finally the navigator saying, why aren't you going to do, do what I tell you? Because I don't want to do as you tell me. And the enemy, meanwhile, is saying, oh, that's fine. You know, that chap can't make up his mind which way he's going. Oh, I think we'll leave him to wander off into the desert. Exactly what Satan has tried to do with the church, you see. It's totally wrong what has happened. Many Christians have tried to cope with this by, of course, keeping other Christians at arm's length, do you know? And actually what you find in the church today is most churches have become social clubs. They really have, you know? The nearest you get to Christian love is the handshake at the door, you know? And then you come and say, hello, and sit down, and then you all have communal service, and then at the end, a handshake, and off you go to your private little life, you know? And you might meet once in the week, and then next Sunday it is again, and that's church. Great. And the world says, oh, that's fine. Um, you go to church, do you? How many times do you meet? Oh, we meet on Sundays and once in the week. He said, well, I belong to the golf club and we do the same. <laughs> oh, tremendous, do you? Yes. Ah, yes, but we have wonderful fellowship at church. Well, we have wonderful fellowship at the golf club. Do you know it's wonderful? We can pick our partner, round we go, enjoy golf very much. It's a type of worship, you know. And uh, we worship on the green every Sunday morning. And then afterwards we sit and chat and Oh, it's wonderful. We just talk. And I've got so many friends, and we meet sometimes at the golf club during the week. Really wonderful. Or the bridge club, you know. Oh, yes, you, that's what you do. You get along with other Christians, and it's good. And do you have coffee evenings? Oh, yes, we have coffee evenings. So do we at the bridge club. That's marvelous. And a hand of bridge. Do you ever play cards? Well, not often. Do you ever worship the Lord? Oh, not often. 
And there it is, you see, it's one society meeting another society. That's it, or the Women's Institute, or whatever. It's not the answer. And unfortunately, this is why the church has lost its dynamism, because instead of being willing to come into the reality of what fellowship is, we've treated the church as a sort of social club, you know, where you go and shake a hand, and then off you go to your private life. It suited me down to the ground when I was an early uh, a young Christian in my early days. I loved it, you know. I used to spend an hour and a half talking to Christians, but I could always pop home to the privacy of my own house. And many ministers like it that way, you know. They like to leave the church at home, and back they go to the privacy of their own house, and then they can forget about the church for the next few days. It is not what Jesus was talking about. That way, you as a Christian will have nice peace. Oh, wonderful peace. You'll have the most peaceful life out. You really will. But beloved, I want you to know this. Peace is not the aim in what we're in. It's not. You have only 70 years of life. It's a mist that's passing. And peace, is that all you're going to have out of 70 years? It's not it. What is the purpose of our lives as Christians? It is one, to show the glory of God and to give God the glory. Next is to rebel against the devil. Hallelujah. I love doing that. Right? When the devil tells you to do something, you do exactly the opposite. And the third thing is that we might show the world that there is an alternative to what they've got. We don't do that by making the church similar to the golf club. That's not it. What we are uh, being brought together to show is this, that there is an alternative to the type of society out there. An alternative in which the Lord Jesus Christ himself lives and walks and spreads his bountiful blessing on every person in the midst, where the peace of Jesus reigns, where there's love, where there's joy, where there's all these wonderful things, where they can see a group of people who are a society and a community together, really loving one another. So that they say, well, when do you meet? Well, all week. Hallelujah. You mean you never leave the church? Well, we are the church. How can we leave the church? You know? You mean that the golf club members pop in and see you all the time? Oh, no, we wouldn't like that. Do you mean that in your fellowship, your house is open to all? Yes. Praise the Lord. And they begin to see there's a difference between this. This is what God purposed in the earth, that the church should show an alternative society on the face of this earth. Of course Satan's going to attack it. And those of us who get preoccupied with ourselves and with pettiness, we're on the devil's side. But there are those of us who are saying we don't care about that. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to press on into glory. How is there going to be a restoration? I believe the key of restoration is found in one word. And it, this morning, I want to talk about this word. It is a, a lovely Greek word, but a well-known English word. The word I'm going to talk about is the word fellowship. Fellowship. This is a word that's lost a lot of its meaning. By fellowship, what do most people mean? Oh, we've had a nice time of fellowship this afternoon. Bit of spiritual talk, um, McVitie Price digestive biscuit and a cup of tea. That's a nice time of fellowship. Or you meet for fellowship, do you? Oh, yes, we have a little Bible reading and then we go out and have a game of football. Oh, Wonderful. And that's what fellowship has been reduced to. That's not fellowship. Fellowship is not a quick handshake at the door, a nodding acquaintance, a quick, hello, how are you? And just as they're about to tell you that they're feeling lousy, you're popping off 
to your car and on the way home. That's not fellowship. Fellowship's altogether different. The Greek word for fellowship is a lovely word. It's the word koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. Koinonia. And uh, it comes from a word, koinos, K-O-I-N-O-S, which means these things. Common, not common in the sense of being vulgar, but common in the sense of sharing and a, a community. Or, uh, what shall I say, uh, uh, communion. Having things in common is, is the uh, meaning of the word. Do you remember when I talked about Koine Greek? We talked about the language of the New Testament. We said it was Koine Greek. Koine comes from the word koinos. What did it mean? It meant that all the people in the days of Jesus spoke the same language. They had the same language. They understood the same language. It was common among them. Now, koinonia actually means having things in common. Not just one little thing. It means having all things in common. You see? And the concept is you have a group of people who have quite a number of things common between them, and they are prepared then to reach forward to share everything else. It is the sharing of one's very nature, the life force within one, one's spirit with everyone else around. You see? It is an intimate relationship, a partnership, a companionship, a sense of belonging. All of these things are the concepts contained in koinonia, not just a little society. Do you know uh, this word koinonia was used of marriage in the ancient world? And what it meant was this. Two people found they had so much in common that they wanted to get married. They loved one another and they wanted to come together. But in their coming together, it wasn't so that they might then live separate existences. It was with the aim in view of sharing everything else. So here are two people, two circles, and they found that they had quite a bit of overlap. There. Koinonia meant, and marriage meant, that not only were they content with this little bit shared, they wanted to come to the place where they more or less overlapped one another, so that everything was shared. That's the concept of koinonia, you see? A sharing of the intimate details of one's life, a sharing of all one's pleasures, one's joys, the pains, the heartaches, the burdens. That's involved in the word koinonia. It was used of family. A little child will come into the world and he already shared characteristics with you, right? He might have your nose or your ears. He might have your temper, right? Or your former temper. Excuse me, I'm talking to Christians, right? He might manifest all the things you used to manifest. Now, what's the point? He, he shares much with you and as he grows up, you, your aim is to share everything else. That was koinonia, you see? A, a large amount automatically shared, and then coming in to share everything else. That's the concept of fellowship. It was never, ever, ever used of a society or a group of people who just got together because they shared one ideal. The Conservative Association in Chichester, they get together as a society. What binds them together? They have the same political philosophy. You could never use the word koinonia about that. They never want to have to share their cars. They never want to have to share their homes. They don't want to share the intimate details of their life. All they share is their political viewpoint. 
and a bit of money. That's all. The Labour Club's the same. Koinonia does not mean that. It does not mean just the sharing of a philosophy. It means the very sharing of one's life and everything associated with one's life. We are called a fellowship. What does that mean? Oh, it's lovely. You get four handshakes when you go in there. <laughs> That's not it. Or why come along? Yes, every Sunday. Really lovely it is. No, 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 no. That's churchianity. It's not fellowship concept. A fellowship concept is that we are moving on together to get to know one another in greater reality. And soon we will come to a place where we are partners one with another. Let me show you how the word is used. I find in the Bible there are three things, well, two things, that really show us something of the concept of fellowship. And I just want to deal with the two of them and then show you how it leads on to our fellowship together. First of all, the Godhead shows us the true meaning of fellowship. The Godhead shows us what fellowship is all about. We have one God. We are monotheistic, right? We worship one God. But our God's wonderful. He's a trinity. Lovely. Why do you think God, put, uh, God actually had that design about him? Why do you think it was? It was so that the concept of fellowship should be demonstrated to us. This is lovely. They are three persons, and yet they are one, in essence. Here that you've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They think as one. They move as one. They share the same absolutes. They do everything together. There's total agreement in all that they say. Never hear a bickering, you know, up in heaven. Or the Holy Spirit saying, I can't come just yet. I'm just having an argument with the Father. You don't have that. <laughs> there is a total sharing of purpose. Do you see? They come together. When I was first dealing with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I thought, well, I wonder whose job it was to raise him from the dead. And so I started scurrying through my Bible, as I usually do, and uh, I came across a lovely verse which said, the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. So in my notes, I put, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. Wonderful. And I thought that was all sewn up. You know, many people have this simplistic view of the Bible, and I certainly did. And then a few months later, I was reading, I came to a passage where it said the Father raised him from the dead. And then I read another passage that it was Christ himself who decided to rise from the dead. I thought, that's amazing. They all did it. Yes, they all did. And without saying, no, you leave this to me. <laughs> Nothing like that. <laughs> you know? Or, uh, excuse me, I thought you said I was going to do this. <laughs> there was nothing like that. It was true koinonia, you see. They shared everything. <clears throat> In fact, if you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they are totally interrelated. You can't quite tell which is which. Sometimes in the Old Testament, you know definitely it's Jesus who appears. Other times, you can't quite tell who did what. And isn't that lovely? And no one's telling. They move and they function as one, you see. Marvellous. You've heard me speak before about this wonderful way that they give place to one another all the time. You see, if you've got one view in mind, it doesn't matter who does it, as long as it gets done. Hallelujah. That's right. You never find the Lord, the Father, and the Holy Spirit ripping one another down. You never find that. You never find one bad word spoken because they are in such koinonia relationship, they realize that if they speak against one another, they're speaking against themselves. And so what do you find? The Father talked about Jesus, you know, marvelous stuff. And the people on the earth, he said, this is my beloved son, you listen to him. 
He didn't say, well, listen to him, but make sure you listen to me too. Nothing like that. Listen to him. Then the Father sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was, was sent. He didn't mind being sent by the Father. And Jesus said, the works that I do, they're not mine, they're the Father's. You see? The words that I speak, they aren't mine, they're his works. And he did everything by the power of the Holy Spirit within him. He didn't mind. As long as the works were done, that's koinonia. You see, an absolute oneness of purpose, a complete sharing in vision and everything. No bickering, nothing like that. And then the Holy Spirit came. What does he do? He talks only about Jesus. I find it almost impossible to give Bible studies on the Holy Spirit. Always end up talking about Jesus. It's almost as if the Holy Spirit says, you're really out of the Spirit trying to talk about me. <laughs> you know, you're not going to do it. I'm going to talk about Jesus through you. And that's what it's about. And then the Holy Spirit came, what? Because Father told him to come. There is fellowship. It's not just a nodding acquaintance. The Holy Spirit just doesn't say, hello, Father. And off you go, not that. Or a quick handshake, good morning. <laughs> of course not. It's total, the relationship between the members of the Godhead. You see? Now, they shared common things, but they've gone on to share absolutely everything. The second thing that is so wonderful, well, actually, let's turn to it. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, 1 John 1, verse 3. 1 John 1, verse 3. And this is the second thing. And the second thing that demonstrates relation, the true meaning of fellowship is God's fellowship with us. And, by the way, our fellowship with him. Both of those things. Look what it says here. That which we have seen and heard declared we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. Now, I'm going to talk about fellowship with one another in just a moment. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know whether you've ever realized just how stunning that is. You imagine, we can have fellowship with the Father, well, with the whole Godhead, actually. We are capable of having it. We have it by the Holy Spirit, by the way, that's in us. So the Trinity is still there. We have it with the Father, with the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit. Oh, but hold on. I thought you said sharing was having an awful lot in common and then going on to share all the rest. What about this? After all, what did God and man have in common? They had nothing in common, you know? Man was made in the image of God, but he'd fallen. Oh dear, what's all this? Well, I'll tell you something. Father didn't just want communication with men, with mankind. He didn't want that. He could have had it every morning, you know, like a Bucklins sort of uh, set up. Good morning, you know. Uh, a new day has dawned, all over and out. He could have done that. He didn't do that. That wouldn't have suited Father, you know, just to have a quick nodding acquaintance and a handshake when you get up. And off he goes. That's not it. He wanted true koinonia relationship with us. He looked in the Old Testament, and what did he see? All the Old Testament believers were in Abraham's bosom, leaning with their heads on his chest. And Father looked down and he said, it shouldn't be Abraham's bosom they're leaning on. It should be my bosom that they're leaning on. I love these people so much, I want them close to my heart, not close to Abraham's heart. He wanted fellowship with us. Well, how was he going to get it? Because, you see, to have fellowship, you've got to have quite a number of things in common immediately. How did he do it? Wonderful, isn't it? 
through the new birth, through the wonderful new birth. Keep your finger in the place. Go back to the book before, 2 Peter. Go to 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4. Have you ever seen this? Verse 4 of 2 Peter 1, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers. Do you know what the word partakers is? It's related to koinonia. That we might have in common, what? This. Partakers of the divine nature. Wonderful. The moment you were born again, God was so desperate to have fellowship with you, he gave you his divine nature. Fantastic stuff. What do we mean by nature? It's the inner self. It's the inner constitutional makeup. God gave you as a gift in a lump sum all that he felt and all that he had within him, right inside. Fantastic. We see this sometimes in the New Testament. For example, in 1 Corinthians 2.16, where it says, we have the mind of Christ. He gave us of his mind. He did this because he didn't want just a distant handshake. He wanted true relationship. Do you know, that's the only way that we can say we are the bride of Christ. You see? There's Christ, there are we, and what have we got? We've got a huge amount in common. We share divine nature. Amazing. Gift to us, and what a wonderful giver to do it. That's how much he loved us. He made us fit to be his bride. You see? Or, that's the only reason we can say to Father Abba, Father. Koinonia was used of family relationship. You see? Father means we have the divine nature within us, you see? That's why we can say we are the children of God. We share this divine nature. He's given us even of him, his very self. And isn't it wonderful? When we become Christians, Father doesn't just leave it there. He comes in and he shares every part of our life. He's interested in our joys. He's interested when we feel a bit down. He's interested in the little details. There's nothing about you he's not interested in. You see, he's truly in the revelation of koinonia. Yeah, you smash your glasses, he's interested in that, you know? So your shoes are wearing out. He's fascinated by that. <laughs> yeah, amazing, you know? And sometimes you meet Christians, they say, oh God, no, surely it's too trivial for God to be uh, interested in that. You're so wrong. He's in true koinonia relationship. Oh, that we were with him. You imagine spending time saying, Father, can I share your burden, Lord? Father, are you, are you feeling burdened at this moment? Or what is it? That would be koinonia relationship with one another. Uh, sorry, with, with God. Go back to 1 John 1, 3, and let's just see that. Right, verse 4, reading on. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This, then, is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And here he's talking about fellowship, and what's the first thing he says? He says, here's God and he is light. Now, the point John's about to make is, many people were claiming fellowship with the Lord, yet they cheapened what the word fellowship meant. Right? Look what he reads, goes on to say. His God, and God is light, and in him is no darkness. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, that doesn't mean to say you're a believer. You can be a believer. You can be filled with the Spirit. 
No, it's claiming koinonia relationship with God, true fellowship, intimate sharing of everything concerning God. If you say that you have fellowship with God and walk in darkness, you must lie. Because you see, God's light. And if you're having koinonia with him, how can you walk in darkness? That's impossible. And basically what it's saying is this. If you love the things that God loves, and if you hate the things that God hates, then you're of one mind with him. You're of one purpose with him. Then you have koinonia. But if you're one of his children, and you hate the things that he loves, and you love the things that he hates, don't turn around and claim you're having koinonia relationship with him. You're an absolute hypocrite and liar. It's not true. The truth is not in you. And people in John's day were doing just that. Oh, claiming, oh, totally in fellowship with God. Yet they weren't. Do you see, it isn't just a nodding acquaintance. It's a sharing of purpose, a sharing of vision, a sharing of mentality. That is fellowship. There it is. Okay. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then, oh well then, of course, we have fellowship with him, but then we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And this is the amazing thing. Our fellowship with one another is based on our fellowship with God. And if you have one who is absolutely in the vision that God has, and one who couldn't care less about the vision of God, they might both be Christians, they're not in fellowship with one another. No matter how you cut it, it's not a question of saying, well, don't you think all Christians ought to get together? You know, we all ought to be the same and meeting one another. Look, there's only one basis of that, and that is full fellowship with the Lord up here. And it's only when all of us can say our purpose is to be like him, to share his vision, to, to accept anything he has to say, that is the basis of our fellowship. Anything else is humbug. You see, you can't have anything else. There it is. Isn't it interesting that once you are a Christian, the union that you have with Christ is so strong, nothing can break it. But your fellowship with Christ is so delicate that even the smallest sin amazing. I heard something that convicted me greatly. A man said, or I read it, a man had written, he said that a secret sin down here on earth is an open scandal in heaven. And the Lord showed me as I was praying about this verse, he said, all you have to do is be of the same mind as myself. In other words, to say, Lord, you say it's a sin, I accept it's a sin. You say it's wrong, I accept it's wrong. Lord, deal with it, please, in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Then you're in fellowship. You're saying, yes, we're of one mind. You may meet other Christians like that, you know. And at this moment, you find you can't open every area of your life. But at least you can say, well, that's the aim. That's what I want to do. You're in fellowship with one another. Hallelujah. And the Holy Spirit will help you in your weakness. All right, what about our fellowship then with one another? Okay, yes, it does depend on our relationship with the Lord. If we choose to live in our old sin natures, in who we are in the natural, we have no fellowship with one another. There's nothing common between our, our uh, old sin natures. It's only as we live in God that we start having fellowship with one another, start putting away that which is foolishness and sinfulness within us, and moving on into the vision that God has given every one of us. 
All right, what else do we share? Well, we share the divine nature. Yes, we do. That's wonderful. We all have the same mind, the mind of Christ. But there are other things. I was so thrilled when we had a prophecy this morning about unity. That's what I'm talking about. Unity of purpose. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians and chapter 10. And let's see, this is the basis of the communion service. 1 Corinthians 10. And verse 16. Right? That we say this every time we have a communion service in this fellowship. And it's got the word fellowship mentioned twice in this verse. Verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion? That's the word fellowship. Is it not the koinonia of the blood of Christ? Now what's it saying? It's saying, look, when you take of that cup, don't you realize what it's saying? We've all been saved the same way, hallelujah, by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no one in this room who's been saved by any different means. If you have been, you're not saved, full stop. You're saved by the blood of Christ, washing your sins away. Now, do you see, that's unity. We have lots in common. Divine nature, the same mind, we're all born again, all children of God, thrilling. And we're all saved the same way. Then it goes on. And the bread which we break, is it not the communion or fellowship of the body of Christ? Aren't we all totally involved in the body of Jesus Christ? Aren't we? Aren't we in one body? Yes, we are. That's what fellowships are all about. These are the things we have in common and that we share, you know. Go to uh, Romans um, chapter 12, verse 5. That's what it says. All that we have in our salvation is what we have in common. Here it is. Romans 12, verse 5. So we, being many, are one body in Christ. There aren't many bodies. There's only one body. There no, it's not a denomination either. It's anyone who's been born of the Spirit of God by this imperishable seed. Look at this. And everyone members one of another. This would cause a revolution in the body of Jesus Christ if we had a revelation about this. Do you see, when we backbite and gossip and disagree with one another, we're destroying ourselves. It's nonsense. It's like getting out of your own car and start smashing it in with a sledgehammer. It's nonsense. You're damaging yourself in all of this. That pettiness must be put aside. It is destroying what the Lord has purposed in the church. What does he say? There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. Thrilling. There's the basis of koinonia. So here you've got it. Here am I, there are you, and look how much we overlap. All of this. Fantastic. We're already in koinonia relationship, but... The purpose of the church is that we might be open and willing to share everything else also. And those of us who are moving on in the purpose of God do not see our fellowship as a little church meeting where you come on Sundays. If that is why you've come today, you've got it wrong. And you are causing damage to the outreach of the gospel. For people just see it as a society. No. 
it is a willingness and a desire to open our lives up to one another until we truly come into the revelation. We are members one of another, inseparably bound, so that my purpose is your purpose. Your purpose is my purpose. And that is the type of unity that the Lord wants to see in the midst. You see, not a nodding acquaintance, it's much, much more. It is a living, vital oneness together that the Lord wants to see in the church. Do you know, Jesus said this, This is how all men shall know you are my disciples, that ye have love one for the other. He didn't say, this is how they'll all know your believers. Didn't say that. He said, this is how they shall know you're my disciples. Beloved, a disciple and a believer aren't the same thing. To be a disciple, you have to be a believer. But not all believers are disciples. A disciple is one who knows the way that his master thinks, moves, acts, has his being, and goes out to represent his master. This is how they'll know you are my disciples and no true fellowship, that you start showing this oneness, this love, this unity with one another. Okay, did they do it in the early church? Oh, they really did. Let me end for today by going to Acts and chapter 2, and let's just see it. Acts chapter 2, and verse 41 I'll be coming back to this passage next time I speak when my subject will be commune or community, right? And we'll be seeing whether we should be a commune or a community. But let's just read it through. Beginning verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. You imagine that. Suddenly, 3,000 people get saved. How would we cope with 3,000 salvations, all young Christians? How do you cope with it? How did they cope with it? You don't cope with it the way that people try and cope with it today. Do you know, I very often get phone calls from around the country saying, oh, is that Roger Price? And I say, yes. Oh, I've just been talking to someone this morning, and they want to know what the Bible says about such and such. And I said, oh, yes. Well, why are you ringing me? Oh, well, I've told them to ring you to find out. And I said, well, are are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer. Well, why didn't you tell them? Oh, well, I'm not sure of it. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Real body ministry, that, isn't it? You know? Do you think these 3,000 could be coped with by going to the top people, you know, to the apostles all the time? Absolutely, they couldn't have been coped with like that. It was quite impossible. Do you know how they were coped with was this? All the believers took them under their wings. I wonder how many people in this room, if I said to you, right, you've all got a young convert to look after, right? You have them for one year. At the end of the year, I want them, one, fully knowledgeable in the doctrines of our Lord, two, fully mature, with their lives sorted out, take them to your home and show them how it's done. I wonder how we get on in this fellowship. If we are not in the position that they will come through into maturity, we haven't hit it. Every person in this house should be able to take a young convert home to their home and say, this is how it is done. This is how we have love in our home. This is how we have relationship in our home. This is how our children are brought up. Being able to describe to them what uh, is the truth of their salvation. 
every person in this room, and this is the aim of our fellowship, you should be able to lead any immature person through into maturity, that they might see in your life how a mature Christian ought to live. Otherwise, evangelism is futile. No wonder, you know, there are so many people who get saved and that's it for the rest of their lives. Off they go, you know, and they don't grow in the slightest way because there aren't enough people around who are prepared to do it. Well, how did they do it? Look, verse 42. In this verse, you have four things that they did. A. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Oh, yes. And that's first. Amazing. Today, you have the thing, oh, don't talk about doctrine. mustn't have teaching. Teaching divides. No, it doesn't. It unites. Hallelujah. You see? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. He wanted, the apostles wanted them to know what was what. And so they gave them teaching on what was what. And every person shared that teaching and so they passed it on. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Next, and in fellowship. Now here, what was this? Oh, just, uh, well, let's get together, have time of fellowship this morning. No. Fellowship meant a sharing of all their lives. It meant they could call any time of the day, and they've received Jesus at the door. They were able to share anything. They communicated in their lives. Like dear old John Bunyan, who got saved. How? Not in a church. He went to Bedford, into the back streets, and there were some washerwomen. They were doing their washing together. And as they were doing their washing, they were talking things, and John Bunyan said, I'd never heard the like. It was fantastic. He sat down and listened. He said they were talking about Christ as a real person. That's fellowship. You see, a sharing of the washing, a sharing of this, and a sharing of that. Absolutely marvellous. That's the second thing. Then they had this true openness, a sharing of their total lives, Next, in the breaking of bread. And so people say, oh, they had communion service. No, they did not. The breaking of bread simply meant having a meal. You see? And what did they do? They had breaking of bread from house to house. In other words, oh, have you got anywhere for lunch? No, you can break bread with us. And so they sat down. And how they used to do it, they used to have all the food in containers, and they used to serve from the container onto the dish. And these young Christians used to learn much from that. They learnt this. One, that they were all eating of the same food because now they come into the family, you see. They were now one. They were sharing of the same bread. The word bread means food, you see. The breaking of the food. The sharing of the food. This is one pie and we divide it up. We're all going to have a bit of this pie. Isn't that wonderful? It represents our oneness in Christ. They learnt that Father was the provider for all his children, not just the ones who owned the house, even for the ones who were just sojourners and visitors there. You see, and strangers sometimes in the midst. Wonderful. That was fellowship. And every time we, in, as a fellowship, and individual members of it, get together for a meal, call in for a cup of coffee, that's what this is about. You can have my coffee any time you like. Hallelujah. Why? Because it's God's coffee. Praise the name of Jesus. Yeah. Then the next one, and in prayers. And here you have an interesting uh, arrangement, one that you find often in the Bible. It goes by the very technical name of a chiasm, but I'm not going to spell that out. And what you get is this. You have four things, A, B, C, and D, and in this type of relationship, A and D are combined and B and C are combined. You find this often in the Bible. Now what's this? A is doctrine, D is prayers. Here's the spiritual activity. And the two in the middle are also combined. It's a sort of sandwich, you see? 
and the two in the middle, fellowship, that's a sharing of your life and a sharing of the food in the middle. So you have, right, spiritual activity, a sharing of one's life and of one's food, and then spiritual activity. This doesn't mean to say you do A first, B second, C third, D fourth. No, they're all mixed in together. But there's the relationship, you see. It's the total life. It isn't just learning up here. It's a living process. That's what's involved in koinonia. And what's the result of these four things? This is what they did constantly. And the results that came from these things are what we all long to see in the church. But we're not going to see them until we start doing them and coming into true revelation of fellowship life. What happened? Let's just look at it, verse 43. And first of all, awe came upon the people. Awe. In other words, they looked at those Christians and they thought, they've got something. Their God has to be reckoned with. That's the type of awe or fear that came upon them. And fear or awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Right? That's the fear of the Lord breaking out. The next thing that happened was they started sharing everything. You can only share everything with people who you know are totally with you and in the same vision. Do you see? They started to do it. Verse 44 to 46. And all that believed were together, one in purpose, mind, movement, direction, koinonia relationship, and had all things common, koinos, common. 45. And sold their possessions and goods, parted them to all men as every man had need. We're speaking on this next time. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, communion, no, meal, right? And sharing food. Well, whose house is nearest? Well, we'll eat at your house today. Praise the Lord. That's the type of relationship. Don't see all hyper-spiritual stuff in this. This is ordinary breaking of bread as they did in Luke 24. And breaking bread from house to house did eat their food with gladness and singleness of heart. Wasn't that lovely? Total unity of purpose and everything. Koinonia is what it's all about. Next, and praising God. And the third thing, they had favor with all the people. Even the people of the world realized they really have got something those people. Oh, I wish I had someone to call every time I had a problem. I wish I had someone to share my life with. London is full of lonely people. Oh, they're just longing to see relationship like this breaking out that they perhaps might see Jesus through it and become attached to it. Look at this. And last of all, evangelism broke forth from this relationship. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, beloved, it's all right talking about evangelism, talking about sharing things. The thing that's got to come first is true koinonia fellowship with one another. It's all based on that. I'll tell you this. I am in this fellowship and this uh, place where we meet and the people that we meet with have the name of a fellowship because that's our aim. I'm in this so that my life may be shared with the saints and that they may share their lives with me. You can't share your life with too many people. And that's why we're seeing the establishment of these house groups within the fellowship now, you see? And we'll be talking about the, the push behind the house groups in a few weeks' time. But it is the aim that counts. 
the aim is to share our lives. Beloved, I challenge you all, is your aim honestly that? Or is your aim simply to come along to satisfy your little conscience that at least you're going to church regularly? If that's it, honestly, there are many, many places that you can go. It's not the push behind our gathering together. Our gathering together is true koinonia. As God has, and as God has with us, this sharing of every detail and every part of our lives so that one burden in one part is the burden in all and one joy in one part is the joy in all. We've got to see a restoration of true koinonia relationship with one another. Next time I'm speaking on commune or community. God bless you. <clears throat>